Welcome to the Rerooted Podcast with Francesca Maxime, trauma-sensitive mindfulness meditation teacher and poet. Together, we'll take a closer look at approaches to transforming trauma with insights from psychology, neuroscience, spirituality, social justice, and the creative arts. Join Francesca and her guests for an exploration of our shared connection and how we can cultivate greater compassion for ourselves and for others. If you'd like to support Francesca and the Rerooted Podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Francesca. Hey everyone, I'm Francesca Maxime and welcome to the Rerooted Podcast here on Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network. It is actually November 11th, 2021, which means that on this Thursday, it is Veterans Day. And uh, we are honoring the veterans who have served and all of those who um, also haven't survived and whose legacies and memories live on and all the ways in which um, engaging in that kind of uh, service uh, also can have consequences at times that are traumatic. And so today we're going to be talking to uh, Dr. Colin Ross. He is an internationally known renowned clinician, researcher, author, and lecturer in the fields of dissociation and trauma-related disorders. He's the founder and president of the Colin Ross Institute for Psychological Trauma. He obtained his MD from the University of Alberta in 1981 and completed his training in psychiatry at the University of Manitoba in 85, and he has been running a hospital-based trauma program in Dallas, Texas since 1991. He's authored 34 books, over 250 professional papers, and reviewed uh, for numerous professional journals and whatnot. I could read on and on, but I will say um, that I'm honored to have Dr. Ross here with us today. And I was introduced to his work uh, at a conference for, I believe it is the International um, Society for Psychotherapy Integration. I may have it sort of the, the, the acronym a little bit backwards, <laughs> um, but you can, you can tell me better. Uh, and, and we were talking about how um, a lot of the future survival strategies, the, the strategies that we use to kind of get through things are oriented really toward our well-being and our safety, even if they also create problems in our day-to-day uh, behaviorally and how to kind of get to the root of what's really happening. So welcome to you, Dr. Ross, and thank you so much for joining us here today on Rerooted. Thanks for the invite. Uh, So I'm here on Unkatog land uh, in New York City. I usually say that my pronouns are she and her and hers. I'm a sort of middle-aged, you know, uh, mixed ethnic, you know, uh, Haitian, Dominican, Italian, American woman here. And I just sort of like to name my social location and my geographic location and the land that I'm on to just sort of honor um, all of the intersectionalities that are presented in me so that when I'm sort of asking you questions or coming through this later sort of multi-prismic, you know, lens, uh, so to speak, and that you also have, I'm sure, your own set of experiences and uh, sort of imprintings, as I would like to say. And so maybe just tell people a little bit about who you are so uh, we can get to know your um, kind of what's informing some of the work that you do with uh, veterans and with others. Okay, so buongiorno. <laughs> buongiorno. Sono <laughs> canadese. Um, non parlo uh, italiano. Molto bene. Poco, poco. Okay. Um, so, welcome. So, as you mentioned, I grew up in Canada, um, went to medical school. I lived up in the Canadian Arctic for a while. Uh, my dad got transferred to Sicily, lived there for a while, England. So, here, there, around and about. And then I finished my training, 
I was a hospital-based psychiatrist. We're now in 85 to 91 timeframe. And I started uh, publishing, writing with a focus on trauma, dissociation, multiple personality disorder. And then there's kind of just this relentless squeeze in Canada that my ability to get research grants was going to dwindle down because it wasn't biological brain type stuff. Support uh, for treating dissociative patients was getting squeezed down, down, down. Mm. So I started thinking, "Mm, I should try and move somewhere better. (laughs) And so I ended up in 91 coming down to speak at a conference in the Dallas area. And it was just a speaking engagement and then ended up getting recruited by the program director who had organized the conference. And then six months later, here I was in uh, Dallas. And then I've been, uh, I'm on the third hospital now. So the previous two hospitals I was at closed, Um, but continuously from 91 till now, I've been running trauma program in a hospital, inpatient and partial. And then a year, actually a year and a half ago now, I moved down to Austin and I've opened a, what's called partial hospital program, which means basically groups Monday to Friday. Uh, one here in the Austin area and one in Lubbock and West Texas. Mm-hmm. And so I'm still actively involved in providing services, treatment of traumatized people. Yeah. And then I, with all these books I've written, there's professional trauma-related books. And then there's uh, poetry, aphorisms. Uh, short stories. So I'm a literary guy as well. And then there's Me too. Stuff on cancer. There's an alternative cancer model, which I think is really mainstream. Uh, and then um, one of my books is called Human Energy Fields. Mm. And so then I was thing about energy fields and sort of spirituality, anthropology. But we're going to try and stick with PTSD today, right? Um, yeah, we're, we can try. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to work, but I mean, we can have multiple, you know, I've had repeat guests before. I'm not averse to that. We can get into other things because I think about all those things too. And I just had Dr. Stephen Alexander on the podcast. He is the, um, pres- you know who it is. Um, he's a jazz musician and he's also, um, you know, uh, uh, a physicist and he's the head of the, um, black physicists association and, you know, talking about the integration of sort of quantum physics and cosmology and neuroscience and all these things. So I'm, I'm game for all that and spirituality and poetry and, and all that. Um, but maybe we'll start just to ground ourselves with um, perhaps an opening around something that you just said, which is uh, dissociation, working with people that um, have dissociative uh, tendencies or disorders, whatever they're classified as. I tend to not use that word, but technically that is the label when they're input. Uh, inpatient in a uh, medical facility. So for people who don't know, um, what, from your perspective as an MD, is dissociation and how does it manifest in the kind of patients that you see and um, and why? Okay, so I've done lots and lots of research and, you know, written books on dissociation. So it's kind of a top of the mind topic. Um, So there's several different definitions of the word dissociation. So one is the just general plain English meaning. It's the same thing as disconnection. So if you're dissociated from something, you're disconnected from it. Disconnected from your feelings, from your memories, from your ability to move your body. If it's not a neurological problem, it's psychological. And so it just really means being disconnected. Um, 
It also, it's a technical term in cognitive psychology. It's used experimentally in the uh, back to at least the early 90s. And then it's a phenomenological term, meaning there's dissociative symptoms. So in that sense, what is dissociation? Dissociation is the symptoms in diagnostic criteria, questionnaires, checklists. Just like what is anxiety? Well, anxiety is the following items. What's depression? It's the symptoms in the Beck depression inventory. So nothing different there. <clears throat> so that's really a set of symptoms. And then there's kind of a um, psychoanalytical theory meaning of the word dissociation. So I mostly talk about the common sense, everyday disconnection, and then the symptoms. And dissociative symptoms include a whole variety of different things. So you can block out a memory, so you're disconnected, dissociated from the memory, or you can have the memory of the event, but when you're talking about it, you're just kind of this robot telling the story because you're completely disconnected from all the feelings. Or you can have fear, panic, terror come rushing up out of nowhere, seemingly. You can't connect it to anything because you're disconnected from everything, but one part of the, the experience is erupting up. So you can be disconnected in all kinds of various combinations from various bits and pieces of an experience. When you have PTSD, um, which is a very well accepted diagnosis now, it used to be called railway spine back in the 19th century. Oh, because wow. people were getting- Traumatic stress disorder used to initially be called railway spine. Yeah, because of course there's somebody's thinking it's got something to do with the spine, but it's basically guys getting PTSD from accidents and injuries building the railroad. Uh, and then it became a shell shock and battle fatigue. And then it became post-traumatic stress disorder officially in 1980 in the third edition of the manual, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Uh, so it's been around for approximately 300,000 years, but it's been either not recognized or called different things. Uh, but post-traumatic stress disorder, if we just think about the flashbacks, which in the official diagnostic criteria of the APA's manual, they're called dissociative reactions, for example, flashbacks, or dissociative flashback episodes. So it's kind of half recognized in regular mainstream psychiatry that PTSD is fundamentally dissociative. Mm. But then a lot of psychiatrists would debate that and poo-poo that. But nevertheless, flashbacks are a very core symptom, clearly. And if they're dissociative flashback episodes, it's going to lead to somebody going, I think PTSD is dissociative. Mm. Because basically, there's two sets of core symptoms, which can be emotional, psychological, and physiological. So it's all fight-flight. So when you're really revved up in fight-or-flight mode, you either got a lot of anger, aggression, or you got a whole lot of fear, terror, panic, run, hide. And so that can get triggered by something. So if you're a combat veteran, now I use the Middle East mostly as an example, but I used to use the Vietnam War all the time. Mm. And everybody knows from movies and films and so on, there's lots of helicopters in Vietnam. So you've got a Vietnam vet, which could as easily be you know, an Iraq, Afghanistan vet, who's in the backyard, he's flipping burgers, everything's okay, he's calm. A news helicopter goes overhead. All of a sudden, giant flashback, he's back in it, he sees it, he hears it, he feels it, he dives under the hedge, and everybody's got to reground him and reorient him 
so what's this deal about overreacting to news helicopters? Right. It's pretty obvious, right? The trigger in the present is in itself not a threat at all. Right. But it triggers, so your your reaction is way out of proportion, out of context, doesn't make sense, it's mentally ill. If you just look at the present context, but if you understand it's a normal reaction to the reality of the past, right. it's gotten triggered in the present. Right. And it's the same thing if you're, uh, doesn't matter male or female or whatever, but use an example of somebody who's cisgender female, uh, who's a victim of a rape or childhood sexual abuse, repeated molestation, and say it was Uncle John who was her main perpetrator, and he always wore a blue baseball cap. It's a normal day, and some man walks by with a blue baseball cap on. All of a sudden, there's this big panic reaction. And if it's a civilian woman, then she gets the finger pointed at her because she's hysterical or borderline or dramatic or attention-seeking. But when it's a guy who looks like he could play in the NFL, who was a special forces guy, and it's combat PTSD, we have a whole different attitude. Right. But it's basically the same thing. And and, so, and, and you're and you're implying then that that attitude is more um, accepting or that you're brave or that, of course, you would have that as opposed to, or it's somewhat more forgiving than perhaps for the woman in your example. Yeah, I wouldn't go to fully accepting because there's still... What's the matter with you? You're a weakling. But it's not as condemning as the the woman. Okay. And so um, the reason I say that's a dissociative symptom is all that stuff is kind of under a lid. So dissociation can mean you've disconnected, stuffed it inside. But if it was just stuffed forever, you wouldn't have flashbacks, right? So there's either trigger or it's spontaneous. And then stuff erupts in. And it doesn't feel like, oh, hmm, yeah, that's what happened. It's got this involuntary intrusion eruption kind of quality, and you, you can't just turn it off instantly. You can use breathing and different grounding skills. So I always say that a flashback flashes back. If it doesn't have the quality of flashing back, it's just with you. It doesn't intrude. So in order to have the quality of a flashback, it has to be dissociated, disconnected, stuffed inside somewhere. You're at the grill doing the burgers, and then you right. have this diving under the hedge. So it's fundamentally, you're either, it's dissociated in the sense of it's disconnected, or it's dissociated, but it's intruding back in. Mm-hmm. That's the core, both psychologically, emotionally, and physiologically. You're either all revved up in fight-flight mode, or you're numbed out, shut down. So on one hand, your parasympathetic nervous system is dominant because you're numbed out and shut down. Mm-hmm. And the other, it's sympathetic nervous system, fight, flight. And people with PTSD usually go up and down from one to the other. Right. right. So it's very, another thing I sometimes call it, just to make a point in a workshop, is I say that PTSD should be called bipolar trauma disorder. Because mm-hmm. you've got the up pole, sympathetic, overdrive, the down pole, and so the way we work with it clinically is all tied into explaining, teaching, normalizing. This is how mammals react to threat. You can't just as a little kid go, no, I don't think so. Your yeah. body does it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I so appreciate what you're saying because 
you know, I work with, um, you know, I work clinically with uh, psychotherapy clients somatically um, to sort of work with the nervous system uh, in the way that you're talking about, about fight, flight, freeze. And it's a whole different level of psychoeducation and sort of learning around. No, that's not who you are. That's how you've been because mm-hmm. you've learned to do this thing you needed to do because your body wants to survive. And right. wouldn't it doesn't doesn't that make sense? And what's funny to me, and I don't know if you encounter this with veterans, and I'll let you continue with your with your story, but uh, is 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 people seem to have a hard time letting that go, even if it's useful. They can make the change right. eventually, but they feel as though it's somehow part of their personality, and they're they're defective, and that they need to accept that or something. And my invitation is actually you're working perfectly well. And, um, that's why this is here. And, um, we just have to bring it up to date, uh, so that you don't have to feel so threatened when you're having a barbecue. So I hope everybody's noticed that the mind is a little bit complicated and the brain is <laughs> a little bit complicated. Yeah. So like nobody's got it all figured out. There's not just one perspective that explains everything. Right. Right. So I think it's simultaneously true, and I use the uh, orthopedic example all the time as a teaching point. So somebody's going along, everything's fine. The drunk driver goes through the intersection, hits their side of the car, and now their femur is sticking out through their skin of their thigh. Mm. They come to the emergency department, and the first of all, the eMERGE physician comes in, then the orthopedic surgeon comes in. Due to extensive medical training, the person's able to observe that this is abnormal. So you're abnormal, you're pathological, you're sick, this is not right, your bone's sticking out through your skin, which is obvious to everybody, right? But what the doctor doesn't do is go, oh, abnormal person. Right. The doctor goes, well, that sucks. This is a very pathological, abnormal way to be, but it's a completely normal injury for what you've been through. And then all these different kinds of mental health problems. The people I work with have massive childhood trauma in all different forms. It's an understandable, unavoidable, normal injury for what you've been through. It's not you to the core. You're not fundamentally sick and damaged, just what you were saying. So that just by itself, that educational aspect of it doesn't instantly cure anything. But it reassigns you to the category of normal person instead of mm-hmm. mentally defective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I write about that. Uh, one of my books is on the genetics of schizophrenia. And I think that genetics and it's full of all kinds of data and analysis of literature and stuff. Um, it's, in psychiatry, the idea that schizophrenia is a genetic brain disease is way, way, way oversold mm. and largely disproven by the data in psychiatry. So like when one identical twin has schizophrenia, overall, if you combine the best design studies, the other twin only has it 22% of the time. Mm. It's just by itself proves it's well, maybe a little genetic, but not that much. So even there, in what are supposed to be hardcore brain disease, genetic problems in psychiatry, there's a huge role of trauma, abnormal learning, and a lot of it's not just the physical abuse, the sexual abuse, but all the family dynamics. And you've been to this attachment stuff. Attachment stuff is this whole pile of different things. So you get taught to uh, have 
insecure attachments. So one way I describe that is it's a little bit like deep sea fishing. So you need a caretaker when you're a little kid. You have to have a caretaker to survive. So you automatically bond and connect. And so you want the caretaker close because then you're safe and taken care of. So everything's good until you go, oh, wait a minute. That's my perpetrator because it's the parents. Uh, I got to push that person away in order to feel safe. The perpetrator's far away. Now I'm okay. Oh, my God, where's my caretaker? So you end up with this love, hate, push, pull. And that's basically the core of borderline personality disorder, which is which is uh, an official diagnosis, but it's also a, basically an insult and a term of slander in the mental health field. Borderlines are mostly women, mostly hysterical, attention-seeking, not legitimate, pain-in-the-neck people. That's the attitude that dominates in the mental health field. You, you don't have to tell me. When I was getting a social work degree at Fordham, one of the teachers assigned to our field study supervision uh, class, like he would, you know, we'd meet to discuss cases and, and things like that, um, would use the terminology, borderlines, this, bit, bit, and the prosody around it was very dismissive. And I called him out on it. And, you know, he was like, well, that's what everybody says. And that's how they are. And I'm just like, well, listen, this is the problem with institutionalized and systemic and, you know, patriarchal kind of um, thinking around these kinds of things. And uh, in any case, needless to say, you know, I passed the class and had my degree, but to your <laughs> barely, point, barely. Yeah, to your point, right. To your point, however, um, it is very much um a prime example of one of the many, 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 many ways in which uh even the quote unquote mental health field uh causes deep harm. Right. Yeah, the mental health field is causing a lot of mental health problems. Oh, you want to do another podcast yeah. on that? <laughs> you want to, or you want to give me a couple snippets on that while we're here? Well, I'll give you a, a little role play. So, psychiatrists write about stigma, right? And they want to destigmatize mental health problems. And their number one strategy for destigmatizing is educating the world and educating patients that it's not their fault. It's a brain disease. It's just like diabetes. You can't help it. So let me role play the psychiatrist doing that explanation. Okay. Um, so I'm the client and I'm saying that it, it, you know, I'm having problems and, and uh, you know, I feel like my friends are, are going to, you know, disown me if, if I'm too anxious and, you know, I'm not able to show up for parties in the way that I, you know, think I should. And, and, uh, and I just don't know what to do about it. And I just want to stay at home and hide. Well, I'm very glad that you came to my office today. So let me explain something to you. You're a genetic mutant. You're not the same as everybody else. You're defective to the core. And that's why you have this kind of anxiety. But even though you're a misfit and a genetic mutant, and really you probably shouldn't procreate and should consider either getting sterilized or having an abortion if you get pregnant, which is genetic counseling, It's okay because if you take these medications for the rest of your life, you can kind of fake it that you're normal and maybe people won't notice. Now, do you feel destigmatized? How's your self-esteem? Are you hopeful? I mean, it's, it's absurd, right? So if somebody actually has a genetic disease like Down's syndrome, which clearly is genetic, Mm -hmm. we don't, 
a lot of people have that, you're not normal, you're sick, I don't want to see you around my kids. But a reasonable, decent person just goes, you're a cool, lovable human being and you've got this genetic defect. Mm -hmm. So when it really is genetic, we don't have quite that horrible attitude unless we're in Nazi Germany and then we want to basically fry everybody. But I just think that the genetic defective to the core model is horribly discouraging, horribly stigmatizing, and not even scientifically correct most of the time. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate what you're saying. And and I guess that's, and, and, and then that gets into shame. And so we might as well just stay here because that is something that's big on my mind. And it kind of circles back to what you're talking about with the um, piece about the veterans. And then we can kind of stay with the veterans and maybe you can give some examples of how you do work with folks in your day-to-day for me, in my experience, the way that I've come to understand shame versus guilt or shame versus, you know, even remorse or accountability or shame versus, you know, self-esteem or confidence or, you know, these different, like, that shame seems to be about who you are, who I am. I believe who I am, to your point, right. is defective at the core. I have a core belief. They call it a core belief, sometimes a schema, right. like, whatever. I have this affective collapse or I don't really believe or even if I don't have this sort of physical affective collapse and kind of hiding and pulling away and numbing out and these kinds of things I sort of in I sort of do do that right like I'm I'm I'm, I'm the one who assumes nobody likes me right, right. Um, because I'm defective to the core I have this belief nobody overtly well maybe they did but you know in my day-to-day you know or maybe they do um, but it, it I can have this regardless of whether or not anyone ever explicitly said this to me. As well. yeah, if I'm wearing a very well-designed mask, I'm good. Yeah, right, right, right. So my you answer see my, the real truth. Right, right, right. I know we're in the pandemic, so it's it's easier to hide, perhaps, because it's it's internal. But it's this experience of I am not worthy. I don't matter. There's something defective of me. I don't get to be on the planet, um, but I'm here and I have to suffer through it. Whatever it is. Um, I'm defective at the core, as opposed to guilt. I feel bad about something I've done. I'm okay, and the behavior that you know I did was harmful or impactful, and therefore I can be remorseful if I'm able to have some perspective about it and maybe move into a place of accountability and repair and right. uh, try and make a connection or, or do the best that I can to at least not recreate that. And my self-esteem, my self-confidence, my self-worth, my sense of myself is intact and is in place. And what I've tried to kind of explain to people, and they don't like this, and it's not meant to be mean to people. It's actually something that was echoed by Joseph Goldstein, one of the other Dharma teachers here on Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network, in a podcast that he was doing that I was listening to the other day, sort of that it's, it's as self-absorbed as narcissism. It's as self-absorbed in terms of the child state taking over, the one that was frightened, the one that is threatened, the one that instead of having a fight response and taking up all the air in the room and being the center of attention, says, I can't take up any of the air in the room. I'm going to pull back and I'm going to be in the corner. And that somehow there's a belief that gets entwined with that, which is because I feel bad, I must be doing something good in a way, socially, because it's almost reinforced, especially with women, at, l- at least with those who are, you know, in this. And so when I say that it's narcissistic, or I say it's self-absorbed or self-centered, what I'm trying to say is, is that it doesn't leave space for the relationality required for repair in the end. 
And so we kind of go into the sinkhole of quicksand around, I'm not worthy. And so it's a very painful, and I've been there, trust me. I mean, very much so. And it's still, you know, kind of flits in here and there about anything. And I'm like, oh yeah, hi, you know, whatever. (laughs) Like this is, my mindfulness practice comes into play. But it's not like I don't have self-worth. It's that, oh yeah, that old tape is still kind of humming here or there, but it's not center stage. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, maybe that piece because and, and and then maybe go back and what you even think of what i'm sharing right now well that's exactly the way i explain it if it comes up shame is about who you are guilt is about what you've done and people write like whole books about shame and it's all complicated and stuff but i like to boil it down to at least i can understand it mm-hmm. um so i've got a, a piece of jargon that i invented called the locus of control shift right it's part of my trauma model therapy, I called it. So the locus of control shift is the self-blame, which can lead to both guilt and shame, self-hatred, self-punishment. And it's front and center and driving life in the people that I meet. And so I thought to myself, well, why are people blaming themselves for being abused as kids? That's ridiculous. Like, what's wrong with these people? And then, okay, we could say they're a bunch of borderlines. Okay, so I rejected all that attitude that I was taught by modeling as a psychiatry resident. And then I said, well, maybe they're just like really dumb and they don't get it. No, all kinds of IQs, full spectrum. has nothing to do with IQ. Maybe it's gender. No, males and females. So it's a puzzle. Why are people holding on to this? I'm bad. I'm no good. I caused my dad to abuse me when it's obviously not true. Mm -hmm. So I just thought about it a bit and realized, well, wait, that's just normal child thinking, which is I called the mind of the magical child. I'm at the center of the world. Whole world revolves around me, and I've got this power to make things happen. That's just the way kids' minds operate. All kids, not just the, not just All kids. Right. Doesn't matter gender, culture, IQ, doesn't matter. And so you, the locus of control is where the control point is, so you automatically shift it from inside the abuser or family members to inside yourself, just because that's how your brain processes it. And then you conclude, I'm bad, I'm unworthy, I'm causing it, I deserve it. And then you're ashamed of being this horrible person. And then you're guilty of seducing your dad or your uncle, because it's all your fault. And you should have done this, and you should have done that. You should have told somebody, you should have said no. And of course, you're just a trapped, overwhelmed, scared kid who's being threatened. And if you're old enough, you lived in an era where nobody believed that there was child sexual abuse going on anyway. So we normalize that, explain that. And then obviously the idea is to reverse the locus control shift and realize, you know, I wasn't any different from any other kid on the planet. And I'll I'll talk about do you think that there's some kids who deserve to be sexually abused? And usually it's no, but well, maybe a few. Oh, okay. So then we'd have to take it on a case by case basis. Mm. This kid deserved to be sexually abused and this one didn't. This kid was evil as a newborn in the nursery and deserved to be abused. Mm. So go through it a little bit. No. Okay. So you're the one exception on the planet out of 7 billion people. It's a privilege to meet you. Mm-hmm. So I kind of make it so I'm feeding back to them what they say. Yes. In a, such a ridiculous form that they go, well, that's not true. Yes. And then it's okay. So 
You deserve to be loved and taken care of like any other kid. The reason it didn't happen was not you. Your parents had a bunch of problems. And then that it's a whole process. Like it's not just, but when you reverse the locus control shift, you end up with not so much guilt, not so much shame, not so much self punishment, negative self-talk. So the depression lightens up. But the problem is that throws you into the reality of the situation, which is you were very scared, small, sad, lost, lonely. So it throws you into a whole bunch of unresolved grief. And then I always say nobody in their right mind would want to go there. So in order not to go there, you blame yourself, you hate yourself, because that gives you an illusion of power and control. I'm causing it all. If I decide to be a good little girl or good little boy, mommy and daddy will get it. Or 30 years later, if I can just be a better wife, better sex on demand, quieter kids, cleaner home, he won't be so stressed. He won't have to hit me anymore. So that locus control shift thinking doesn't just evaporate when you get your driver's license and it gets reinforced and ingrained a billion times over by how people treat you, your own negative thinking about yourself. And so it's not just a theory about the person's childhood, because I work with adults mostly. It's driving the machinery in the present. Yes, yes. I still a, a core thing that we focus on all the time. Right. And and so when you say it's a core thing that we focus in on all the time, I'm assuming you're talking about your work with the veterans um, mainly, but also in, you know. All you types of trauma survivors. So let's not forget the veterans on Veterans Day. So right. uh, one of my papers is called Self-Blame and Suicidal Ideation in Combat Veterans. So that's like working with over 100 guys, 95 guys and five women sort of. But it's mostly males who've been in combat, been deployed, been in combat, have PTSD, and they're suicidal enough that they get referred into the hospital. So it's like a very select group from whom I think you can learn everything about everything. So a couple of points here. So one is, which I mentioned before we started recording, in that sample of people, almost without exception, there's a few exceptions, but big majority of the time, the combat PTSD is sitting on top of childhood trauma PTSD. And so uh, the analogy I use there is there's two football players. They both get hit at exactly the same angle with the same force by the same linebacker. One of these guys has already had three surgeries on his knee. The other one's never had a knee injury. Which one do you think is going to come out worse from being hit by the lineman? Mm. So when you have prior trauma, maybe in a way it toughens you up, but also makes you easier to just get triggered back up into full PTSD. So then that's sort of an underlying background. And then that leads to scientific testable research projects. Like you send a thousand, mostly guys, some women into combat and X percent get PTSD, but how can we, and we, you can control statistically for how much combat exposure, et cetera. How can we try to predict who's at the highest risk for PTSD? Well, the people with massive childhood trauma compared to very stable. And then we can have uh, SEER training and special forces training and things to maybe make you more resistant to the trauma. So 
that's going to then lead to, okay, how come there's so many people in the military killing themselves by suicide who are never deployed? Obviously, it's not combat PTSD. So my explanation would be, which is true of suicide in general, it's not so much what's wrong with you, it's what happened to you. Yeah. And who would want to continue to live on this earth with all this pain, all this suffering, all this self-blame, all this self-hatred, and all this maltreatment, and no sense of hope? Right. So I don't agree with suicide. I'm not going to like, I personally would never do physician-assisted suicide. I'm not totally against other physicians doing it, like for late, late, late ALS or late, 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 late stage cancer or something. Mm. I'm fine with that. Um, Just as a side comment, I'm not fine with psychiatry getting in on physician-assisted suicide Mm. because they're just going to mess it up so badly. You're suicidal, so we might as well kill you. It's exactly the opposite of what we're supposed to be trying to do. Right, right. But anyway, so in combat, guys, uh, time after time after time after time, there's variations. I'll give a few examples, but there's variations. But it's really the same underlying themes all the time. Why are you suicidal? And huge percentage of the time, I say, well, it's kind of like you've you've court-martialed yourself, and as the judge and jury you've decided that your sentence is death. Mm. But you don't deserve to get off too easily. So you should suffer for a long time. So the killing oneself, there's the active hate, anger, blame part of it. It's my fault that my buddy died, that the civilian died, that something happened. So one combat scenario, um, there's a a guy who's usually in the lead vehicle when they go out from whatever area it was in Iraq or Afghanistan. And of course there's IEDs all over the place. And, but he's almost always assigned to be in the lead vehicle. But that day he was like six vehicles back. It was a day just like any other. There was no reason to predict anything was going to happen. And then his buddy who's now in the lead vehicle instead of him hits an IED, you know, huge flames, the vehicle's up in the air, everybody stops. And so he's, he's got to run six vehicles to get to his buddy. And so by the time he gets there, it's the guy's like in the process of dying right there, major third degree burns all over his body. So that's going to be traumatic for anybody. Right. But what he's explained to me is it's his fault. He should have known, he should have been able to prevent it, and so he's basically a negligent homicide perpetrator. Mm-hmm. Therefore, he deserves to be killed. Okay, so then I, I break it down into let's go through this step by step by step by step. And I'll give a couple of different scenarios that follow exactly the same pattern. Mm-hmm. And it would be the same sort of procedure if it was a civilian woman who was a victim of date rape or random stranger rape. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's, let's go through it step by step by step here. So, okay, well, if you had known that the lead vehicle was going to hit an IED, if you knew that five minutes in advance, what would you have done? Well, I would have gone and stopped the thing. And Okay, so the fact that you didn't do that proves that you were negligent or does it prove that you didn't know? How could you have known? 
So really the problem underneath is not that it is the guy's fault that his buddy died. The real problem is he was powerless and helpless to prevent it. Right. So it's that underlying powerlessness and helplessness. So yet again, nobody in the right mind would want to feel that and go there. So you hold on to the locus of control shift, which already has been brainwashed and programmed in by your childhood trauma. Right. So then we just go through it. Okay. I kind of agree in theory. Okay. Maybe I didn't know, but I should have this, I should have run faster. So, okay. So how long was your, we can go into the, the fine grain detail if necessary. How long was your buddy up in the air before he came back to the ground? Okay. So then I get to say, I went to medical school. You know, I'm not a phys- ER physician, but I also am just a human being with common sense. This guy had like third degree burns over 80, 90% of his body. There was nobody on the planet who could prevent him from dying at that point. No plastic surgery, nothing. It was just too late. So you're supposed to run a hundred yard dash in one second. Even if you got there in one second, the explosions already happened. And so we just go through it until just logic, I guess it's not my fault. Right. And so then the next scenario is, um, which was really like really a, a sad, painful story. So this guy is tough, you know, special forces level guy, and he'll be a linebacker in the NFL. He's in the inpatient unit suicidal, but he's not feeling nothing. He doesn't have PTSD. And you can't get a flicker of emotion out of him. So what's the story? The story is he was involved in tons of combat. Um, This is Afghanistan. But he's assigned to be sort of the chauffeur, organizer, schedule keeper for the commanding officer. And so this commanding officer is like always behind schedule and you've got to kind of drag him out, but you can't go, hey, boss, move it, because he's the commanding officer. So you just got to get him to the meeting that he's 10 minutes late for, you know, as often as possible. That's just the way it is. But on that particular day, delay, 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 delay. Okay, now we're driving from point A to point B. And as we're driving along, there's just been a firefight. And there's a kid, 10, 12-year-old kid, lying on the ground dead. But this is a kid that the guy knew, had befriended, and was like giving gifts to and you know, had a relationship with. Mm. So immediately what happens is, locus control shift, it's my fault. I'm directly responsible for this death, which I could have prevented. And then we go back through it again. Okay, so you should have, if you had known the kid was going to be killed, and the commanding officer is dawdling, what would you have done? No, I just would have left. And I would have taken care of business and the kid would be alive. Mm. Okay, why didn't you do that? Well, I didn't know. Right. So we're back to the problem is you didn't know. You were powerless and helpless. You couldn't prevent it. And why wouldn't you just mouth off at the commanding officer and tell her to like move his butt? Can't do that. So... He's still, there's not really any emotion, but he's, he's kind of sinking in cognitively a bit, but the emotion is still completely locked down. Okay, let's, um, let's say that you went back to Afghanistan, you found this kid's mother. What would you want to say to the mother? Sobbing. 
I'm so sorry. So now all the emotions up. And then, then we get into, okay, so what does that prove about you? That you feel so much sorrow and grief. It proves you're a good human being. Mm. And if you had known, you would have done something because that's who you are. And then we got in that particular conversation a little bit into what reparations could you make? I don't think it was your fault, but okay. So then we start talking about maybe I could be a big brother for kids whose dads have died in combat. So actually just behavioral things you could do to kind of right the spiritual balance while working on it's not your fault. Um, another guy, um, now we're going to get into the future aspect of this. Yeah, so in, meaning, in, meaning, okay, the future-oriented survival strategy that, okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Which I makes sense to me, but I'll tell you, I had a lot of trouble getting that paper published. Right. Where's your data? That's not true. Right. So the whole PTSD industry is focused on PTSD equals post-traumatic stress disorder because it's a problem in the present that's post the traumatic event that happened in the past. Right. And then in the military, nobody debates this. Nobody says, oh, this guy's got PTSD because he's going to be in a car accident next year, right? So like, <laughs> what am I hung up about here? It's just all obvious, right? But my argument is we should rename PTSD PTSD because PTSD doesn't really capture the nature of PTSD, whereas PTSD captures it better. Everybody's like, what's this guy talking about? So I think we could, instead of calling it post-traumatic stress disorder, we could call it pre-traumatic stress disorder. It's really a future-oriented survival strategy. So what's the idea behind that? Well, back to one of the guys that I learned this from, combat veteran, and his story was he was not a high-ranking commanding guy, but like sort of sergeant level or something. And he was responsible for sending a motorcycle career guy out to do things and check things out. And of course, it's dangerous when you go beyond the fence. And... That day, the motorcycle guy went out and got killed. But he didn't really go through the usual like assignments and paperwork chain. He just said, I'm going to go out. Because it seemed like a low-threat environment at the time. And so the guy dies. So then it's my fault because I should have known. I should have stopped him, all the same logic. And if you had known, you would have stopped him. So then... I'm a murderer. I deserve the death sentence. He was, he was down that road, but more he was, it took me a little while to get this out of him, but his vow was, nobody's ever going to die on my watch again. Mm-hmm. Ah, nobody's ever going to die on my watch again. Now I get it why you're doing this behavior that you've been describing. So he's back home in a nonviolent neighborhood, wife and kids, Every night he gets up and patrols the perimeter of his property armed multiple times. Mm. And he's like way overprotective, overworried, checking in on his kids all the time. Yep. And I realized, oh, this is the vow you made when that guy died on the motorcycle. Nobody's ever going to die on my watch again. Right. But it's really about your kids dying in the future. And then we went into your threat assessment was off. This guy spent a little time in military intelligence. Okay, I don't think your intel is good here. So it's just like the tutoring situation again. You're reacting to the threat level in the present 
as if it equals combat threat level. Right. What are your assessments off? What's the risk to the kids? It's not zero. So then that got us into the therapy conversation. Uh, so that made me think, wait a minute. Sure, there's all this past trauma. It's all tied in. But until we get therapy conversation focused on preventing trauma in the future, we're not. We're just going to try and take away the PTSD. So exaggerating a little. So we're going to make you into this slacker who's just like, naughty dog, everything's good. Right. You're not going to pay attention. Your kids are going to get killed. Right. So in order not to do that, you have to be hyper alert, scanning, looking for danger. Right. So the symptoms of PTSD are just trying to spot and prevent the trauma in the future. Right. Unlike in the past where you messed up and it was all your fault. Right. Right. And so, and then another thing I, I learned was from an, this time non-combat woman with massive childhood trauma with a dissociative disorder. And I'm working away with her and I'm just like, this is just not going anywhere. So I say to her, typical thing that I'm trained to say, you seem to be holding on the symptoms awful tight. Why are you doing that? Why don't you let go? Right? Everybody thinks letting go is the thing to do. When the family says, the, either the family of the returning veteran or the family that abused the heck out of the kid, why don't you let go? So what they really mean is stop talking about it. Pretend it was no big deal. Don't bother us. Right. So I say to the woman, why don't you let go? So she explains it to me. If my parents have been telling me, my family's been telling me to let go, this is what they really mean. And I go, oh, so you'd be dishonoring yourself, yep. pretending it was no big deal. So your symptoms are the memorial to your trauma. 100%. And so, well, no wonder you're holding on to that. Why would we want to have no memorial? And, I, and then I might go off on a tangent. Um, I've been to Oklahoma City Memorial. I've been to the you know Vietnam, Korea. I'll tell you that's a because since I'm in Texas, it's not that far to get up to Oklahoma City. Mm. So the Oklahoma City bombing memorial. Yes. Oh man, that's an intense place uh, because it's very beautifully sort of Zen garden style, very spare lines and stuff. And there's a chair. There's sort of sloping grass, and there's a metal chair for every victim. So you're going, going, wow, that's a lot of victims. And then you look, wait a minute, that's a really small chair. And it's like, oh my God, all those kids who died, like overwhelming. But there is a memorial to that trauma. And you're even getting emotional now, even thinking about it. I know, it's really overwhelming. So side, side story, Uh, we were over at a conference um, in Poland and we did a tour of Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. which was set up, there's a bus and a guy speaks English and it was, or a big, it was actually a van and it was about an hour plus ride out to Auschwitz. And so there's, I can't remember all the countries, but I think there's somebody from South Africa, somebody from New Zealand, US, Canada, a couple English people. And it's a chatter, 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 though, nonstop the whole way out. And where do you come from? And where have you been on this trip? And where are you going next? And then we all get to Auschwitz where you're standing right on the railway track where the kids got out, went over here, sat on the grass like 50 yards away, and then from there went directly into the crematorium. I mean, you're right there where it all happened. 
on the way back, not one person said one word. It's just so cool. So, um, but the problem, this is all leading to, first of all, trying not to cry in the middle of the therapy session. No, no. I mean, <laughs> honestly, I think it's so beautiful because, I mean, I've done it and I'm getting teary too because this is what's missing. Right. Slowing down the empathy, the compassion, holding space, honoring, grieving, having collective ceremony, recognizing one another's common humanity, that life is precious, that different things are not yeah. within our control, that that there are there that there's that there's something about what's happening now mm-hmm. that I think changes the field when we allow it to happen. And I don't mean change the psychological field, although it might, but the energetic field, even though we're on a recording, even though whatever, because we're honoring and we're holding space. And you having held space reminds me of, I was there also. um, Yeah, it's absolutely overwhelming. It is. But I'm so glad that I went there. Of course. So then, so a little segue, but back on topic sort of. Um, then I'll sometimes turn it into a dumb story. So in therapy now, okay, so there's this memorial. This is, and I was at my travel agent the other day to my travel agent. Well, I've, I've been to various memorials. Really what I want to do is take a trip to the child sexual abuse memorial. Could yeah. you set that up for me? And the right. travel agent go, there isn't one. Right. So, and then the ugly history of psychiatry for most of the 20th century, well, pretty well all the 20th century, but certainly from 1905 to 15, that era up until late, well into the nineties minimum. Right. Psychiatry was the leading social institution for the denial of childhood sexual abuse by doctrine, which is it's all edible fantasies and false memories. And it's extremely rare which I was taught. Wow. So not only was there no memorial, there was active, it was like Holocaust denial, basically. Right. No, absolutely. Literally. Not not the literal Nazi Holocaust, but the Holocaust of childhood trauma. Of course. Which denial. Why Tarana Burke started the Me Too movement to talk about women and girls in communities right. of color in particular. And even that got highlighted through the big Hollywood white actresses first, as opposed to really emphasizing the day-to-day family trauma of childhood sexual abuse and incest at home, which has been a part of my work that I've done for a long time also. I totally agree, but a little side comment. Um, so I've, I diagnosed my first case of multiple personality disorder as a medical student in 1979. And so the idea is it's incredibly rare, maybe totally bogus, a lot of psychiatrists still say that, although we've got massive piles of research showing that's not the case. Um, so there's this huge resistance. And I think it maybe shifted. My daughter is a psychiatrist in Toronto. She says it seems to have shifted more in Canadian psychiatry than American psychiatry. Hmm. But now it's more like, oh, yeah, it's now called dissociative identity disorder. Same thing. DID is not that rare. It is legitimate. There are people in the system still massively underdiagnosed. So I've seen 
from 1979 until now, which is several years, I've seen a little shift about multiple personality disorder. Much bigger shift about PTSD is real, it's common. You know, there's tons of Hollywood movies about it and so on. Hollywood's done a better job on, especially if we include like SVU, mm-hmm. One Order SVU. I mean, those kind of shows, they have to be Hollywoodized. But that show teaches about childhood trauma and the impact of trauma better than psychiatry did when I was a resident by far. Yeah, yeah. And so when I I look at the slow pace and the massive resistance to dissociative disorders in particular, childhood trauma in general, in psychiatry, it's like the Me Too movement's been like fast-tracking for the last five years. If you look at the just every day, you look at ads on TV, the number of African-American people on ads has gone up like, whoa, dramatically just in the last five years. Mm. And clearly, it's not because a bunch of powerful white guys got together and said, "Mm, we should do this. No, uh, I mean, most of the people, I used to be a journalist, and so most of the people even in that community say, you know, make sure that you diversify your news organization because it's good business, meaning you'll get more viewers and you'll get more advertisers. Um, Because we know the Browning of America is about the new global majority, which is interesting that, um, you know, that also gets um, extractified and capitalized and marketized and things like that capitalized, um, which is its own form of trauma and dissociation and dismissive avoidant attachment and um, narcissism in my own view. But um, do you want to finish something or can I sort of... No, no, that's good. Guide. Okay. So, I mean, all of those anecdotes about working with your clients are amazing and important and essentially, you know, give me a lot of cope and confidence because to be perfectly honest, um, as I'm listening to you, I'm like, good, I do that. Yep. I've done that. Yep. That's how I work with clients too. (laughs) And so it makes me feel good. And I didn't learn it in therapy school. I learned it in all my, (laughs) matter of fact, I learned the opposite. Um, and so like you, I'm very critical of the institutions and the establishments because I do feel as though they are coming out of that Freudian analytic, you know, place and this sort of like, you know, um, woke white feminist place that social you know, work kind of started from of this philanthropy, you know, kind of like kind, you know, doling out, you know, things as opposed to um, really kind of a mutual aid where we're in this together and, 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 and you know, balancing uh, of resources. I agree, but disagree. So psychoanalytical psychiatry dominated from beginning of the 20th century to 70s still basically dominant 80s started to shift a bit and by the time now we get to now it's totally academic psychiatry is totally dominated by biological psychiatry Mm. which is all drugs brain chemicals genes Mm -hmm. it's the medical model Right. One of the tricks there is when you call that reductionist, simple-minded model the medical model, then anybody who disagrees with you is against medicine and against science. It's a very, it's a little trick. Yeah. So when any family physician can tell you that, like, I'm just overwhelmed and flooded with mental health stuff all the time. Uh, so I think I've lost my train of thought now. 
Well, uh, it's a paradigm shift comment, basically. For the medical model, right. Well, my point was simply about Freudian an- analysis in the oh, history of woman Thanks. and the denial of childhood sexual abuse and the fact that, you know, I did a podcast with Dr. Judith Herman about this and just sort of the whole idea that, like, the actual lived experience of women, once he believed it, was then changed because of his social circle and, you know, him not being able to hold and ex- and allow and, and to do what you're talking about, grieving, have sorrow, the compassion for those clients for the fact that, in fact, um, you know, this is what had been perpetrated from people he knew um, within these women's uh, families and that holding that this could be a friend, a colleague, uh, someone in his social circle or class or whatnot uh, was too overwhelming so that to your point, disbelieving and denying um, become part of it. And I will say that that deflection is what we often see when I talk about a lot of podcasts that have to do with, you know, sort of the construction of whiteness or the construction of these things. You're talking about like naming things like the medical model, like we're, we're talking about a certain kind of, you know, someone says it, the white supremacist delusion, you know, sort of the, the idea that somehow certain bodies and certain melanated, you know, levels are, are, are better than others. And people who say they're non-racist, but actually harbor implicit bias and, and prejudice and have power and resources to then inflict harm on others that right. are, um, that are non-white, that this is, um, very typical in terms of the, the strategy. Oh, uh, now I'm not racist. Uh, no, what are you talking about? No, we have a black person on our staff or something. Um, so that's just an aside. But there were a few things that I just wanted to put a pin in, and then we're going to close because I know it's getting to be time. But um, one is the grief and the sorrow that needs to – so you you have the trauma, you come to the insight, you've done your deductive reasoning, you're sort of at this place where, wow, no, I couldn't have changed it, and oh, yeah, now I really am trying to protect my kids from getting killed, not – you know, there, I, I acknowledge there's nothing I could have done about the past. The grief and the sorrow, there's no place for that, no ceremony, no – yes, there are those memorials, but to your point, there is no childhood sexual abuse memorial, alcoholic right. father memorial who, you know, beat the shit out of me when I was a kid. Right. There, those memorials don't exist, and so – I would offer that in my experience, that's why a lot of times groups and things are often very healing when people are willing to go into them because they can hear and validate and go through ceremony, um, oftentimes with others, uh, the healing process of not just griping about your problems and how bad it was, but having a lived shared experience of this didn't only happen to me. It is what happened to me. And sadly, it happens to others. And that, you know, there's other ways of healing too out there in the world with nature and, and, and with, you know, dance, mm-hmm. music and all these other things. And about suicide, I just wanted to say that one of the things that I've thought about is I don't necessarily want to die, but I want the pain to stop. And I have no way of holding it. I have no way of processing it. I have no way of being able to know how to tolerate my overwhelm, my sorrow, my grief, and my helplessness. I have no, no one ever taught me how to do that. And the way that I've internalized it with my locus of control shift, as you mentioned, is, is it's at its limit. It's at its peak. I can't, there's no more. The container is popping. Right. And, and so for me, I often try to invite people to consider, of course you want that to stop. And I don't know if it necessarily means that you have to be stopped or you have to stop. Right. But of exactly. course, right. In a multiple personality dissociative identity disorder frame, you've got an angry persecutor, ultra personality who's trying to force the person to kill themselves or going to kill them. And one of the initial steps, besides finding out what year that 
part thinks it is because often it's like 1982 and you're still in the trauma. Right. Do you realize that you live in the same body? Do you realize that if you kill her, you die? There's all that. But then it really is your motive is basically self-soothing, self-care, reducing the pain. As we don't want to change the underlying motive. Maybe we'll tweak the method a bit. Yes. So it's, again, normalizing, normalizing, normalizing. Of course, who wants to feel all that pain? Right. And that's why I think the addiction, you know, whether it's heroin or food or gambling or sex or porn. The other thing I thought of is as a strategy, as a survival strategy for um, not being able to tolerate the sorrow and the grief is, is to use the addiction, for example, the alcoholism that you may employ as a loyalty to the memorial of the friend. It's your memorial because I can't align with having a full, happy, balanced, open life today when my friend died in combat, when my friend is in jail and I'm the one who got away. And so I am going to silently commit suicide over time and make it true that I don't have the full life I could because I'm secretly aligning with my sorrow for them because it can't, there's no other way to do it. And my, my intervention on that is, okay, so military people, do you believe in honoring the troops? Unanimous, yes. Okay, so what would your dead buddy want for you? Your dead buddy never got to come back and walk his daughter down the aisle, go to the grad, you're the only one who can now live that for him. And if he's up in heaven on the sidelines, what it would be saying? Well, he'd be kicking my butt and telling me to get on with it. So you're dishonoring the troops yeah. by not living a full, happy life. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's like a therapeutic guilt trip, I call that. Right. No, it's great. I love it. I love it. Um, I mean, I don't love that you have to do it, but I love that it's there. And um, and again, the letting go doesn't help. I always say, well, of course it's necessary to hold on to this until we can create enough space to hold it. And the other thing when you said about pre-TSD versus post-traumatic stressism, uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome, I often talk to clients about, well, of course you're trying to pre-know. If we can pre-know something, yeah. <laughs> you know, then we can make sure that bad things cool. don't happen in the future, right? Um, and then the last thing is, is that I've heard someone else say, when you said the word vow, I'm like, oh, that's such a beautiful word to use. Um, another person that I've had on the podcast, her name is uh, Sarah, Con Sarah Payton, and she talks about unconscious contracts. And it's like, I vow to solemnly swear to forever only do this because even the emotional truth in coherence therapy terms, the emotional truth of something is I must always do this in order to survive or to stay safe or to whatever. So... Um, in, in, in summary, in close, this has been such a dynamic and lovely for me um, conversation on so many levels. And um, I hope that it was all right for you also and to our listeners and to our viewers. I, I think it was just like a hair above all right. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Very enjoyable. No, thank you so much, Dr. Ross. And also um, for honoring the veterans who are, um, you know, being honored on this day, Veterans Day, November 11th, 2021, still in the middle of uh, a pandemic and, and really honoring our collective humanity. And um, well, as I mentioned before we started recording, my dad was in the Canadian Army. He took shrapnel on his shoulder in the Netherlands. And my uncle was in the Royal Air Force was missing as a pilot, missing and presumed dead three times. So I'm aware of combat trauma and I haven't experienced it personally. But. Certainly. Yes. But again, intergenerationally and epigenetically, who knows? Right. Yeah. 
Um, we, 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 we do carry legacies. Um, and sometimes we're able to be in a place where we can try to offer something back. So uh, Dr. Colin Ross, the Ross Institute, the website is R-O-S-S-I-N-S-T, right? Ross? Yeah, short for institute. Right. But it's R-O-S-S-I-N-S-T, like Tom, dot right. Dr. Colin Ross, and um, you're in Texas. Thank you so much for joining us here on Rerooted. Yes, and anyone else who wants to find out more about me is um, maximeclarity.com, M-A-X-I-M-E, Clarity, C-L-A-R-I-T-Y. Thank you so much, and have a great Your mission is to maximize the clarity, right? <laughs> well, that's, yeah, I mean, that that is kind of it, right? In hopes that once we have clear thinking, it's it's really more along the lines of the Buddha talks about not being able to see clearly. And that is part of the root of suffering. And that's what we really had the conversation about. If you can see clearly, then we can begin to do the work of healing. If we can't see clearly and we're operating under essentially fake news or false evidence or something like that, it becomes Mm -hmm. very difficult because we're sort of doing a lot of stuff over here, but we're not actually getting to the root of the why. And if we can understand the why, then we can do the doing that might repair. So thank you so much. It's lovely. 